Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Anne of Bohemia! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! It's all weird doing it with an audience. I don't know, honestly. Weird. Hello and welcome to Rex Factor reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England from Elswith to Prince Philip. And today we are reviewing Anne of Bohemia, first Queen consort of Richard II. And what's more, we are, for the first time since Covid, in the same room at the same time. In this podcast. It's weird. Yeah. We've had to work out how we actually set the microphones up again. Oh, well, can we have a little moment to talk about that? Yeah. Because... I right now, I'm sort of a bit fidgety because I'm so comfortable. <laughs> Normally, uh, you know, I'm, I'm on my kneeling chair. Now I'm back in my podcasting throne, which the lovely PCs bought us. I'm, I don't even have to move from my most comfortable angle <laughs> to have my microphone close to my face. I've got a a, a what's that called? Tea, tea. coffee table yep. for my tea. Uh, just super. Uh, anyway, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email us at rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And we're a free podcast, but if you'd like to hear more of us, get some bonus content, you can do so by joining the Privy Councillor at www.patreon.com. I feel that I've got much more sympathy for my children now. Like, you know how uh, to kids, every new experience, every experience is new and exciting. Um, <laughs> I'm just noticing all the new books you've got and stuff. Oh, lots of new and books. Like, oh, 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 oh. Something about Star Chamber there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Lovely. I'm just, I'm getting it out of the way, basically, so I'm not, yeah. no further distracted. Uh, okay, I think, okay, I'm done, I'm done. Should we go on to Anne? Yeah. Okay. Biography! Anne of Bohemia was born on the 11th of May, 1366, and she's the daughter of Charles IV, the Holy Roman Emperor, and Ooh. Elizabeth of Pomerania. Uh, don't know who she is, but that sounds good. Well, yeah, so uh, she's their eldest child, but this is actually Charles's fourth marriage. So she's got lots of half-siblings, including a future Queen of Hungary and another Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, she's named after Saint Anne, who's a very popular saint in Bohemia, purportedly the mother of Mary. Mary? Uh, as in the Virgin Mary, mother of oh, right. mother of Jesus. I was, I was thinking there, oh gosh, this is this... Uh, Mary Queen of Scots or Bloody Mary, or, or are they actually the same thing as everyone knows, of course? Oh, God. <laughs> no, no, just Mary. Just the original. Um, so, St. Anne, thus the grandmother of Jesus. Oh, right. Though she's not named in any canonical Gospels. It's like the blind watchmaker. Yeah. <laughs> God's got a grandparent, what? It doesn't work. No. Uh, unlike her recent sort of largely French predecessors, uh, Anne obviously has a bohemian heritage. It was a very different what I've oh, been looking at recently. Uh, her father is the king of Bohemia, uh, which is modern-day Czech Republic, uh, and her mother is from the Baltic, so sort of Poland-Germany, though her mother's family had actually ruled Bohemia until 1306. Uh, sort of Germanic-type influence, isn't it, down there? There's, mm. um, is this where we... St- now, I'm trying to... Get, I'm getting too big for my boots here. Is this where we get the German influence first start? Was that with Hanover? That's miles away, isn't it? That's quite a long way away, okay, yeah. Right. You hold on to that one for a few more episodes, I think. Okay, I've got that in my pocket. Um, her grandfather, uh, so Charles IV's father, is a chap called John of Luxembourg. He died heroically at Cressy, fighting for the French 
against the English in a suicidal cavalry charge. Oh, yeah, we're miles back in time, aren't we? Yes. This is like still 100 years war. It time. is, exactly. Right, yeah. okay, fine. Um, suicidal because he was blind. What? He was blind? Yeah. He was on a horse? Yeah. Saw that the new... Well, he didn't see, obviously, but he knew that the battle was going badly because he'd been told, so he does the honourable thing and does a last charge to die with his men. That's ridiculous. In practical I mean, terms, it's not the uh, most sensible measure. No. It's a, captain what, going down with, I mean, it's a captain going down with a ship, basically. But why was he there? Well, just because he's the, he's the leader of his men, so he's sort of there as a... And, you know, I guess as a king that doesn't fight, I suppose, but just symbolic... Yeah, I can see because it's uh, yeah, it's medieval times. It's all weird. I think it's because that picture of George III is there. I'm going to turn that round. <laughs> I really think it's that. Uh, Charles, Anne's father, is also at Cressy, and he was wounded, but obviously survives and goes mm. on to be the Holy Roman Emperor. And he's perhaps the most powerful man in Europe at this point because he's also crowned King of the Romans, King of Italy, and King of Burgundy. So oh, that's wow. basically all of the actual separate kingdoms of the Holy Roman Empire. Wow. So it's um, not so federal anymore. It's quite centralised. For Charles, it is uh, quite centralised. And he oversees something of a golden age in Bohemia. Uh, So it's the dawn of the Renaissance at this time. His grandfather promoted the work of Dante. Charles himself was a patron of the poet and humanist Petrarch, who, when he visited Prague, compared Charles's court to that of the ancient Athenians. Yeah, that that sounds amazing. Mm. What, um, what, what, uh, What was his name, Charles the... Fourth. Why isn't he know? Is he? Why isn't he better known? I guess because we don't tend to know about Holy Roman emperors in this country. But that's as, that that's much. as impressive as Charlemagne, isn't it? Well, he's got ambitions really of being mm. a new Charlemagne. Prague is transformed into the capital of the empire at this time. New districts are built, a magnificent cathedral, a university is founded. He's still to this day considered the pater patrie of modern Czech Republic. Yeah. Someone to be proud of there. Mm. So this is the incredibly cultured and advanced court where Anne of Bohemia grows up. Mm. Uh, Bohemia even encouraged female literacy um, for centuries. So St. Agnes of Bohemia corresponded with two popes in fluent Latin. Uh. And Agnes's great niece, uh, Abbas Kunigund, was uh, one of the great female patrons of the arts in late medieval Europe and had a very large library. So these are Anne's forebears. Yeah. In Bohemia. And Anne herself is very highly educated, speaks and reads fluent French, German, Czech and Latin. What, what does it look like? I mean, these, these are cathedrals as we know them now. Aren't they? That's when we're starting to get proper... Yeah, and we'll sort of do a little bit of this in subjectivity, but we're yeah. sort of talking kind of gothic style now. Because that's how I imagine right Prague. Right at the centre of it, yeah, yeah. Right, okay. So it is pretty spectacular looking. It's not that it was great, but it was still... No, it's sort of proper gothic, dramatic right, look. Nice. So all very impressive, but when Anne's father wrote to the English court suggesting that uh, his daughter marry the new child king of England, Richard II, it was quickly rejected due to a lack of any real diplomatic advantage for England. Um, that's also quite a lot like a British attitude towards Europe now, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Czech Republic. Mm-hmm. I really think it would help. Uh, but, you know, Richard II is the most eligible bachelor in Europe at this point. England yeah. is a, an esteemed crown. Um, and there are marriage negotiations held with Navarre, with France, with Scotland, um, but all to no avail. Mm. So the answer finally came in the form of Milan, who'd got an incredibly wealthy duke. So uh, envoys, including the renowned soldier Sir John Hawkwood and the poet Geoffrey Chaucer, are sent to negotiate for Richard to marry uh, the daughter of the Duke of Milan. But the Pope has got a different idea. Who we're doing 
Anne of Bohemia, right? Well, this is where the Pope brings Anne back into the story. Mm, I say the Pope, it's technically one of the Popes, because in 1378 we have the Western Schism, where two rival Popes are elected. Uh So there's Clement VI in Avignon and Urban VI in Rome. So France, Scotland and the Spanish Kingdom support the Avignon poet, uh, poet, the Uh Avignon Pope, Clement, whilst the Holy Roman Empire, Scandinavian England, all support the Roman Pope, Urban. Yeah. Now, Urban's problem is that his power base is all a bit disparate and yeah. countries that aren't traditionally allies. So he thinks Richard trying to find a bride, perfect opportunity to bring the two most powerful allies together. How about, he says, Richard marries Anne of Bohemia? Yes, okay. So then you've got the Holy Roman Empire and England, England. Uh, bound together in more than just support of this other Pope. Bound together in supporting the Pope and by marriage and thus against the French. Mm. Uh, So England's envoys in Milan are summoned to Rome. Uh, So it really is quite a direct intervention for the Pope. It really is his idea. And he urges them to reconsider the Anne of Bohemia match. And having uh, having rejected Anne before, England now actually has a fight on their hands to get her because Pope Clement, the Avignon Pope, Uh, also thinks... Of course maybe marry the daughter of the Holy Roman Emperor to the King of France's son, and yeah. then we've got the two big powerful ones and perhaps we get the empire on side. Yeah. Uh, so we've got both France and England now fighting over Anna Bohemia. Okay. We win. We do win indeed. <laughs> Let's get back to that viewpoint. Yeah. This viewpoint. <laughs> <laughs> but um, do you, are we going to cover what happens? Because I'm intrigued about what happens to these popes, how it comes back to one. Uh, we're not going to, and it actually ends up going to three, so oh, the play doesn't really work. It's like boxing belts. Urban, yeah. Um, it eventually comes back to one with some compromise, but this particular marriage work thing doesn't really work oh. for Urban okay. or for Clement. Um, but anyway, England nevertheless does get Anna Bohemia. Two envoys, Michael de la Pole and Simon de Burley, were sent to Prague to agree terms with Anne's brother, Wenceslas IV, with Charles now having died. Of Christmas Carol fame? Uh, ultimately descended from, probably. Okay. Almost certainly named after. Um, matters were delayed somewhat when the English envoys were kidnapped by bandits on their way home. How? I like. You'd want some protection, wouldn't you? Hmm. And we'd. We're talking tracks. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you have jets now these days, don't you? You yeah. have air jets replace, like, going alongside a, a presidential plane yeah. or something. Bring in the air support. We don't have air support, sir. <laughs> bees. We need bees. <laughs> um, but they are eventually ransomed, and then uh, everything is agreed. Anne and Richard are going to marry. Good. So, 1381, Anne leaves Prague and makes her way across Europe for England. Unfortunately, she got stuck for a month in Brussels due to the presence of French pirates in the English Channel, who the Chronicle Froissart believed had instructions to target Anne. Wow. The King of France and his council were desirous of carrying her off in order to break the match, for they were very uneasy at this alliance of the Germans and the English. Mm. Mm. That would have been... Imagine that, if that had actually happened. Mm. The Queen of England captured by pirates. Yeah. That, I mean, you could run and run with that. <laughs> you could indeed. Uh, unfortunately, from your imagination, mm. it doesn't happen. The French are persuaded to guarantee her safe conduct, uh, and she is finally able to complete her journey. Right. I've, I, I feel like I remember that. Guaranteed her safe conduct. They, do they have to bargain anything to get that? Was no, it, I think it? it's just a saying, come, come on, on, chap. Yeah, yeah. Because it go. wouldn't have been that it was a French Navy going to capture her. It would yeah. be... 
there are these pirates who are targeting everybody. Maybe just keep your eye out for this particular ship and it might be something in it for you. Yeah, like mili- uh, military contractors in Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, however, it's still not an easy time for Anne. She endures a terrible crossing with storms and then a rather bad omen on her arrival. Oh, death uh, by boat. No, not quite death by boat, but uh, nevertheless, John Hayward uh, relates. She had no sooner set foot within this land, but such a tempest did forthwith arise as had not been seen many years before, whereby diverse ships within the haven were squashed to pieces, but especially and first of all the ship wherein the Queen was carried. Uh... So it's, it's, he's saying they're squashed to pieces. Yeah. So basically, she gets off the ship and then winds. Oh, pick right. Up afterwards. And they all smash against each mm. other. Squashed to pieces. That's a nice way of putting it. <laughs> uh, Anne is greeted by Richard's uncle, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, uh, and journeys from Dover to Leeds Castle, where she spends Christmas before marrying Richard uh, in London on the 20th of January, 1382. Lovely. And then two days later, she has a coronation, an ostentatious affair, which Frossart describes as having some mighty feastings. Oh, nice. Uh, though it's nearly marred by a dispute between the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Bishop of London over who actually gets to crown her. Definitely Canterbury. It is Canterbury, but he technically hadn't had his pallium because he was a new chap. He, is that like a It's a thing which kind of, it's his official stick, basically. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. Yes, Archbishop, of course. Do you have your stick? Do you have a flag? It's it's it was meant to be here today. It's I've tracked it. They say it's on the way. Yeah. You really are meant to have that stick. I guess I'm gonna have to do it. Oh, it's so silly, isn't it? The Bishop of London ended up doing the marriage and the Archbishop did the coronation. That's how they did it. That's a good compromise, yeah. Unfortunately for Anne, her arrival actually proved extremely unpopular with much of the country. Because why the uh, daughter of uh, the Milanese duke, Caterina Visconti, would have brought a very substantial dowry, and was said to be determined at a later date. Yeah. So they hadn't agreed it. And in the end, Richard actually ended up paying Bohemia £15,000, something like £4 million today. Why? Because uh, basically her brothers broke. And so Richard tried to show you know, his commitment to this alliance... Isn't it normally the other way around? It is normally the other way around. So her dowry was effectively minus four million pounds. Well, I'd want whoever to whoever would negotiated that to work <laughs> yeah. with me. Um, so Richard is sort of fine. He's like, "Yep, yeah, whatever. We're doing whatever it takes to make this work." Oh, that's it then. He's got more to lose. Um, well, he wants the alliance to work. Yeah, but for a lot of other people, they think that's not a very good deal particularly when the person you were going to marry had loads of money. Oh, it's, so, it's so devoid of of any romance, isn't it? <laughs> it's just a bit of a shame. <laughs> uh, and what's more, her uh, brother, King of Bohemia, Wenceslas, doesn't really return the favour in his commitment, so he refuses to sever ties with France. Uh, so the alliance doesn't really come to anything other pointless. than just opening up trade routes with Bohemia. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, that Wenceslas fella, the song is about a poor man picking up sticks. Him. <laughs> yeah, that's all he's got. Um, as such, when she arrives in London, or maybe before her arrival in London, her coat of arms that are up all over the streets are ripped down by Londoners. Because she hasn't got enough money to give them. <laughs> well, yeah. This is outrageous. Uh, and the Westminster Chronicler was particularly damning about the whole affair. To those with an eye for the facts, it seemed that she represented a purchase rather than a gift, since the English king laid out no small sum to secure this tiny scrap of humanity. 
Wow. Dark. Yes. But it's paid four million quid for an alliance. Yes, basically. Yeah. Mm. Um, Anne also brings various bohemians with her to court, um, many of whom receive annuities and grants and illustrious marriages, all of which, as we've seen uh, with uh, previous examples, is rather unpopular with English noble families. Yeah. Um, so it's all rather a difficult start for Anne. She's only 16 years old. She's a long way from home. Uh, London probably would have seemed quite a tawdry and provincial place in comparison to the magnificence yeah. she was used to in Prague, uh, which is one of the great courts of Europe at this point. Indeed, as an interesting um, flip on the sort of English attitudes to this yeah. faraway country of which we know very little, um, during the negotiations, Anne's mother sent an ambassador to inspect and report on what sort of country England was before she would give her assent to the marriage. Yeah, she was very much on the other foot, yeah. isn't it? But we can't see it. So she's going to this backwater, really. Yeah. And uh, and everyone's saying, who are you? Yeah. But she's, okay, poor girl. Um, uh, can you? Can I at least not get the um, QI buzzer for Bohemia? Right. Were they Bohemian? Bohemian <laughs> because of their looks? Is that where we get it from? Uh, I think that it's a later thing. I'm not sure if the Bohemians, as we'd think of it in sort of 19th, early 20th century, are named after Bohemia because Bohemia has a long-standing tradition of being very chic. Oh. Or if it's a very modern thing. It's certainly a very cultured place at this time, of course, but I'm not sure mm. how direct that connection is. Okay. Um, so a difficult start for Anne, and you would also think the prospect of being the wife and queen of Richard II wouldn't mm. be a particularly good one. Richard's the same age as Anne. Um, he's a good-looking young man. He's fair-haired, beautiful, contemporary mm. chroniclers said. Six feet tall, but with quite feminine features, because he was unusually clean-shaven. I think you're basically describing me, the <laughs> man. Yeah. Um, but he proved a very odd and difficult character. He's deeply committed to the formalities uh, of monarchy, insists on complex ceremonial new forms of address like your highness and your majesty. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Uh, and later historians speculate that he had a deeply narcissistic personality. Yeah, you see, that's where we diverge. Um, <laughs> so that Rex fact, that's where we get your majesty from. Mm, indeed. Brilliant. From Richard. It used to be that at court he would just sit looking around and if he looked at you, you'd have to get up and bow. Oh, gosh. So he would just sit there just sort of deciding who he was going to look at. Oh, no, that's no good. Don't that's like too that. much. Yeah. Uh, despite this, however, Anne and Richard develop a very close relationship. Mm. Uh, they're both extremely pious, very intelligent and literate. They've got a taste for high culture and formal ceremony. That's very much the culture at Prague mm. as well. Uh, they're frequently in each other's company. They went on extensive tours of the country over the next five years. And when Richard went to York in 1392, it was the first major itinerary he'd done without her since they'd been married ten years earlier. Oh, that's nice. Uh, he never takes a mistress, and they seem to have been devoted to each other. Brilliant. So despite everything, happy marriage. Yeah. Uh, wow, I was not expecting that. I thought he would definitely have... Uh, he'd be too arrogant mm. to fall in love with someone. But no, apparently not. Um, now, strangely though, given that they're both 16 when they're married, and they are very close, and they're frequently in each other's company, they never have any children together. They're the same age? Hmm. Oh, I definitely pictured a creepy older man. No, no, same age. I think she's maybe even a year, well, a year older, and that's nothing, is it, really? But, you know, they're basically the same age. Uh, but no, they never have any children together. And in 1385, which is just three years after they marry, Richard named his mother's cousin, um, Roger Mortimer, that line has come to be royal now, uh, as his heir. What? So after only three years of marriage, he names an 11-year-old cousin as his heir. Just for security? 
Well, that's the thing. You think, well, surely you've got a bit of time before you need to He's do 19. that. He's 19. Yeah. Uh, and this Mortimer chap, that's his mum's <laughs> lover's... Well, we're going back with sort of his great-grandmother's lover, but the Roger, the famous Roger Mortimer, his uh, descendants marry into the descendants of Edward III. Okay. So the Mortimers are now actually royal, rather than just the upstarts. Okay. And who was the fellow that Edward II fought, Ed, Edward I fought at Kenilworth? The... De Montfort. Thank you. Right, yeah, you see, it's him, <laughs> That's there now. De Montfort, and uh, that... Gaunt guy, yeah, but yeah, it is weird. Think, why is Richard doing this when they're so young? They've got so much time yeah. with them. Why would you name somebody as heir? Yeah, because it's not like he's going on a campaign in France and he needs to no set somebody up. Some historians have speculated Richard could have been homosexual. Well, it's an obvious sort of route to explore, isn't it? Mm. Though a more popular explanation, though I suppose it doesn't rule that out, is that he deliberately chose to have a chaste marriage and thus it was never consummated. Because Richard's devoted to the cult of Edward the Confessor, who, according oh, to legend, yes. has a chaste marriage with Edith of Wessex, and he may have aspired to be this sort of holy virgin king. Mm. And actually, on Anne's uh, side of the family, two of her famous ancestors, Agnes of Bohemia and Princess Cunigan, that we mentioned earlier, they both shun powerful marriages in order to take up the religious life. So it's kind of in her heritage as well. Oh, right. So they may both have aspired to this sort of very pious, chaste uh, marriage. We're not entirely sure if that's accurate or not. It's kind of become the assumed position, but for Richard to completely get away with the idea of having an heir so early on seems unlikely. And indeed, whilst they went on their East Anglian tour of 1383, they made a pilgrimage to the shrine at Walsingham, which is usually associated with trying to get divine intervention for having children. Oh, right. Oh. And a letter that Anne sent back home to her brother in 1384 makes clear they were hoping for a child and one presumes taking the necessary steps, because she wrote, We thus describe our position to your highness as lacking nothing that could be desired, except that we write grieving that still we are not rejoicing in our perperio, i.e. children, but concerning this, hope of health works in the near future, if the Lord permits. Do you know, there could be those people that you hear in apocryphal tales have just don't know how to and have been doing it in the belly button or something. <laughs> yes. Completely wrong. Yeah. It's just not working. Yeah. It's just stop by. It's just not going to work, is it? My mummy told me the stalk would come. I don't <laughs> know. Um, perhaps it is, though, just a pragmatic response to maybe self-evident fertility issues if it was clear that children weren't going to come. Yeah. They both have examples of uh, celebrated pious and chaste figures in their ancestry. Maybe they just make the best of it, mm. make themselves earthly counterparts to Jesus and the Virgin Mary, and often associated with Mary in Ricardian propaganda at the time. So it's maybe a bit like Elizabeth and the Virgin Queen. It's not necessarily what she intended from the start, but once it's clear she's not going to have mm. children, make mm. the best of it. Yeah, put a spin on it. Hmm. Now, despite the close uh, nature of their relationship, we don't know an awful lot about Anne's queenship, unfortunately. And in part, this is because Richard II seems not to have been a friend of historians, because he apparently has something of an eye on how his reputation could be shaped, and so he's sort of covering his tracks, destroying lots of records. Ooh, scandal. Mm, consequently, that means that a lot of her personal and domestic archive doesn't survive, because it's part of the stuff that he gets rid of. Oh, 
because it's a that's like deleting someone else's content on your Sky Plus. Mm. It's not important. Yeah. It's not mine. Just get rid okay. of all of it. Don't need any of this. Yeah. Easiest thing is to delete all rather than leave something on and assume yeah. it's not important. Um. Mm-mm-mm. Despite initial hostility towards Anne, though, some of the things we are able to piece together um, is that she does seem to have won the public over, at least in London. Because mm. uh, she comes to be seen as a very kindly figure, and as with many of her other queenly predecessors, noted for her intercessions for mercy. If only she knew what was coming her way in 700 years. <laughs> All those people going over there for stag parties, ruining their beautiful... <laughs> place that she'd left from. Uh, and the most notable intercession that she uh, has is reconciling Richard to the citizens of London following a financial dispute. Oh. So that thus turns London round to be yeah, yeah. pro-Anne. And unfortunately, Richard is a king who does need quite a lot of reconciling. Um, he was the son of the legendary Black Prince, the grandson of Edward III, but he doesn't inherit their martial ambitions. And his promotion of favourites leads to discontent and distrust among the nobles. Hmm. So we get the Lords of Pellant, who are five senior nobles led by one of his uncles, uh, the Duke of Gloucester. Mm. Uh, they took control of the government in 1387, and then in 1388 there was a merciless parliament where they sentenced various of Richard's favourites and other supporters to death. This whole favourites thing again. Mm. So silly. Anne threw herself on her knees before Gloucester, begging for the life of Sir Simon Burley, who'd been Richard's tutor and had helped to arrange the marriage and thus become a friend of hers as well. Uh, but Gloucester told her rather menacingly, that she should pray for herself and her husband instead. And Burley was executed. Now, thankfully, things do improve the following year. In 1389, Richard's oldest uncle, John of Gaunt, Mm -hmm. he's everywhere, Um, he'd been campaigning in Spain. Right. As you do. For for, for England? Does it? What? Uh, uh, For a vague claim on the throne. Or Castile, I think, specifically. Yeah. Um, So he came back and he helped to stabilise things at court, improve Richard's position a bit, and Richard takes back control of government. Because of John of Gaunt? John of Gaunt's help. Also, Richard's now 21. He's properly senior and all his majority now because he's still Mm. been very young through all of this. Uh, And he's surprisingly, over the next eight years, um, able to have quite a peaceful government outwardly reconciled with his enemies mm. things are going quite nicely mm. Mm. Uh, but sadly not all of that time is to be enjoyed by Anne of Bohemia because she dies at Sheen Palace possibly from the plague on the uh, 7th of June 1394 when she was only 28 years old oh that doesn't bode well mm. um, <laughs> like delete all short reign not good tricky uh, Richard is devastated by her death and he declared that he would not set foot in any building save a church where he had spent time with Anne as the memories were too painful um, he's saying he wouldn't go anywhere he'd already been with Anne any building, any so, building. Ba- I mean basically you know palaces houses places that they'd been together that's tricky mm. does he stick to that because that, that's quite a lot of admin he's factoring into his life there. quite a lot of admin um, it's even reported he was so overcome by grief that he had Sheen Palace which was Anne's favourite residence and where she died torn down as Hollinshead describes he caused it to be thrown down and defaced whereas the former kings of this land being wearied of the city used customarily thither to resort to as a place of pleasure and serving highly to their recreation mm, dear I didn't say that at all well no. I mean, mind you that is quite it sort of goes along with his character to even take it out on a building. Yes. <laughs> it's not bowing to me. And also that he sort of can't process, mm. in a way, the grief is too much for him to be mm. able to deal with. Uh, he delayed her funeral for two months to ensure that the right kind of torches could be imported at great cost from Flanders. 
Oh uh, and they lit a procession all through London towards Anne's final destination at Westminster Abbey. All peers and their wives were commanded to attend wearing long-trained uh, black cloaks and hoods. And when the Earl of Arundel, who was one of the uh, Lord's appellants, showed up late, Richard hit him so hard that he fell to the floor bleeding before being sent to the Tower of London and given a hefty fine. Wow. <laughs> That's asserting control in front of everyone, I presume. Oh, yeah. Yes, this is at the funeral service. Not what you expect from Richard, that he's going to get in a fight with somebody. No. I mean, he really did love her, didn't he? Mm. Uh, He ordered a a double tomb for himself and Anne, which is the first such uh, tomb for an English royal burial, uh, with effigies that are thought to be lifelike on top. Mm. Great fact. Uh, and in 1871, the graves were reopened. It was found that uh, after sort of these enamel shields on the side of the tomb had been removed by just people nicking them over yeah. the years, um, that had left holes in the tomb and people had been sticking their hands in and taking bones out. Uh. So Richard had lost his jawbone, but apparently poor Anne didn't actually have very much of her left at all. Uh. People had just been nicking her. Uh. Well, I mean, how were these holes not noticed? Uh, I guess they were just in a bit of a dilapidated state. Maybe people yeah. just didn't worry about it, but it was only once they actually properly opened it, they were like, oh, we should have... Um, Thought of this. We yeah. should have covered that up, shouldn't we? Why did they open it up? For renovations, did you say? It feels like the Victorians did quite a lot of just, let's have a peek. Yeah, I feel like the Victorians have that arrogance about them that a lot of people of any era have, that we're Victorians, now we've arrived now. Now we can look back on the past and yes. everything up, because <laughs> we got to this point. Yeah. Uh, dear. Anyway, that was the life and consortship of Anne of Bohemia, but how will she do when we review her? Well, we'll find out after a quick break. Battleliness! Uh, I feel there's not going to be an awful lot to go no. on with uh, Battleliness. The only thing I could really think of was that her attempted intercession with the Lord's Appellant for the life of Simon Burley was quite a courageous act. Where did it come from? Because that could be embellished, couldn't it? Even that. Well, the things that usually we associate intercessions with the Queen interceding with the King, yeah, or the King and his nobles, and you sometimes think, oh, this is just a stage-managed yeah, thing. Yeah. But in this case, the King has been not exactly overthrown, but sort of slightly sidelined by these nobles who are going about executing his and thus her uh, allies yeah. and supporters, so and they reject it as well. Mm. and the person he has executed. So, I mean, it's an unsuccessful intercession, but we had there was quite the menacing, you know, you should be praying for yourself rather than mm. this other bloke. So it's not one of these things that's all set up for her just to say that line. It is a genuine, I'm going to speak out to try and save the life of my friend, even though it's a hostile situation. Yeah, she was on the front line of that situation yeah. by asking. So it's a genuinely sort of courageous thing to do because it's a hostile situation. She doesn't know the response. She doesn't know exactly where it's mm. all leading. Yeah, but mm. otherwise, lack of information means we don't have anything to go on. And as we saw with Philippa of Hainaut last time, when you have a very happy relationship, that mm. doesn't necessarily work so well for the agency and independent action because you don't uh, you don't necessarily need to diverge too much from just what yeah. the King's doing, particularly when uh, Richard goes about deleting all of the evidence. Yeah, it's a shame that isn't it? I mean, that really is tampering with our with our Rex Factor format. He's messing it up. Yeah, but I, that is that is where we are with it. Yeah, 
one. Yeah, I think they uh, token one for the uh, for the courage. Mm. But so I don't know that she was necessarily particularly in danger really by doing mm. it. But it shows it shows a bit of courage. But otherwise, we really don't have uh, anything to go on. Nope. So that's a two for battliness. Scandal. Uh, you probably wouldn't expect anything here either, from what we've heard. No. And you'd be right. Ah. Um, nothing directly involving Anne. Um, the one thing I have got is that one of her bohemian ladies became the mistress to uh, one of Richard's favourites, a man called Robert de Vere. Now, Robert de Vere's wife was a woman called Philippa de Cousy, who was Richard's cousin and thus a granddaughter of Edward III. Right. So it was considered quite an insult to the royal family and thus just the nobles that this man was having an affair against his wife who was a descendant of Edward III and with what they derided as a base bohemian, a taverner's daughter. A taverner's daughter? Yes, I'm not sure that she necessarily was. I mean, this isn't Anne. This is Anne's friend, uh, Agnes Lance oh, Croner. Okay, um, yeah. Not directly involving Anne. However, she does make a bit of a political misstep uh, in relation to this case because she requested that the Pope sanction an annulment of the marriage so that Robert de Vere could marry her bohemian lady. Mm. Um, the annulment was granted in 1387 but rescinded in 1389 so further upset and irritation was caused to the nobles without any actual gain or reward yeah. why was it rescinded? Um, maybe because just change in power change in power structures yeah. and they thought actually no maybe just stay married that's what we usually go for isn't it? so arbitrary isn't it? <laughs> Um, but so, if we're going to argue any sort of scandal, it is an affair, and rather than her being like, hey, I'm the moral, virtuous, totally chaste queen, mm. you're not going to have an affair, go back to your wife. She instead said, oh yeah, that is awkward, maybe we could just get them divorced so you could marry her instead. It's not much though, but I tell you what, it does give, um, it does make me sympathise more with Henry VIII. <laughs> Poor Henry, could, everyone else. You can... Just get divorced like that. And so he's saying to the Pope, just why aren't you doing it for me? It's just because it's me, isn't it? Yeah. And he's saying yes. So I'm fine. So I'll do that. Is it just because the uh, cousin of my queen has got a gun pointed at your head telling you not to do it? I mean, that's pretty high up the list of reasons, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Be honest. It's up there. It's up there. I mean, it's also you. But this is... Because <laughs> um, it's so blooming... Yeah. So, all right, one point. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I mean, in, to be honest, I mean, I put it in there, but I'm not even sure if it really is that. It's almost bad subjectivity more than bad scandal. Yeah, because the noble bit. But I'm not really sure that I'd even bother count, counting it that hard against doing subjectivity. If you give a zero, one's probably fair. Yeah, I'll give her a zero. Yeah. So that's a one for subjectivity. She's going down <laughs> rather than up from that too. Subjectivity. Well, we do have stuff to talk about here, and it's not just repeating that she... Uh, Once, yeah. Yeah. Um, on her death, Epitaphs portrayed Anne as a highly pious woman who truly lived to her ideals, uh, following the lead of her female forebears. So one epitaph records her as devoted to Christ and well-known for her deeds. She was ever inclined to give her gifts to the poor. She calmed quarrels and relieved the pregnant. She was beauteous in body, and her face was gentle and pretty. She provided solace to widows and medicine to the sick. In 1394, on a pleasant seventh day of the month of June, she passed over. Amen. Initially, I was going to respond to that by saying, oh, you know, this is just, an, uh, again, an arbitrary list of good, good deeds of the day, hmm. ticked all the boxes. But actually, is that not just great big chunk of subjectivity evidence? It is. I think so, yeah. Wow. 
all right, then really good. All nice stuff. Um, and this reference to pregnant women is quite poignant, obviously, given her childlessness. Oh, yeah. Um, but that it does suggest she... There are other epitaphs that mention this as well, so it does seem like she takes an interest in mm. looking after pregnant women. But it also, connect, it also connects her to her namesake, St. Anne, who was the patron saint of pregnant women. Oh, right. That's the mother of... Yeah. Mother of Mary. Oh, yeah. Well, hang on. The patron saint of mothers isn't... Of pregnant women. Of pregnant women isn't the famous pregnant woman... But the pregnant woman's mother. I mean, that's the most mothery thing they could think of. Mm. A mother's mother. Yeah. <laughs> How odd. Um, another epitaph describes Anne as visiting the sick poorly dressed, which uh, connected her with the Hungarian princess that she identified with, uh, St. Elizabeth, who in widowhood devoted herself to the Franciscan ideal of poverty and went barefoot to church. No, that's her turning up in her jogging bottoms because they're poor. <laughs> Uh, the Eastern Chronicler commented that although she did not bear children, she was still held to have contributed to the glory and wealth of the realm as far as she was able. Noble and common people suffered greatly at her death. Well, this is very, very good. And you think when she was quite unpopular at the start, by the end, people are like, oh, she was all right, actually. Yeah. No, I was formerly in quid, but all right. Mm. She was active in the traditional queenly sphere of intercessions, as she said, and indeed soon after her coronation, she urged Richard to issue a general pardon to those still suffering reprisals from the Peasants' Revolt, which, mm. 1382, they married, so that's just a year after the Peasants' Revolt. Oh, right, yeah, so we haven't mentioned that. No, I presume common. that was his next marriage. Does he have a next marriage? Uh, he does, oh. but that's... Um, next week, isn't it? Well, <laughs> it's a bit longer for Richard, but for us... <laughs> oh yeah and we don't do these weekly I'm still very much a child although we are recording ages. it next week so from your perspective it is next oh, week oh it is next week yeah see I'm subconsciously right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, her most uh, her most famous intercession though came in 1392 uh, for the city of London so Richard had sworn revenge on the city after they refused to extend a loan to him mm. uh, but the Westminster Chronicler recorded Anne's efforts to reconcile him to the city the Queen, more than once, indeed, on many occasions, both at Windsor and at Nottingham, prostrated herself at the King's feet in earnest and tireless, in, and tireless entreaty for the city and the welfare of its citizens, that he would cease to direct his anger against them and would not let so famous a city and its teeming masses perish. He forgave the Londoners all their offences against him, and conditioned that within the next ten years they paid him, uh, or his unquestionable attorneys, £40,000 in real terms of jewels or species, and that on the day appointed for his progress they should come out to meet him and receive him at Wandsworth with appropriate pomp. I, Not I, the most magnanimous of uh, apologies accepted from Richard. Yeah, give me 40 grand and we'll call it quits. I think, I mean... I totally understand why the peasants revolted. You, <laughs> yeah. Who who is this guy who turns up and says you've got to give me money or I kill you and a big celebration? Yeah, and I want a party, well. and you've got to loan me money, and I'm not going to be particularly pleasant. Mm. But the city does deliver. Richard and Anne were met by thousands of uh, London citizens. Richard was uh, presented with a sword, the keys of the city, and a horse. Well, that's unnecessary. Uh, Anne was given a horse with a golden saddle. Uh, the streets were decorated with banners, crowded with people. Numerous pageants were staged for their entertainment, including one where a choir of boys dressed as angels uh, performed a little ceremony where they placed crowns on Richard and Anne's heads. This, uh, this is a little late to tell you this, Graham, but much like I am with um, all the religious fellas, like, these royals, what? Who do they think they are? <laughs> I've just gotten on. I think that this is outrageous. This what Tyler chap had a point. He has. 
Oh, I'm sick of it. It wasn't quite enough yet, so in 1393 at Christmas, they're entertained once again. Uh, Richard is given a camel. Uh, to give an, he'll think it's a horse. Get him pissed, he'll think it's a horse. Uh, and Anne gets a large and remarkable bird with an enormously wide gullet. <laughs> pelican, right? Probably a pelican. <laughs> I like that idea. <laughs> Never using the name for something, just to, just to describe it. Speaking of which, I'd like a bag of leaves again in a minute. <laughs> yeah. Put some hot water on it. Um, following this, Anne persuades Richard to, uh, Richard to remit the £40,000. Yeah. Good. Oh, she's great. Hmm. She's really good. And so when you consider at the start, London was tearing down her banners and the Westminster Chronicle described as a tiny scrap of humanity. Awful, awful men. Uh, she's now popularly remembered for many years after her death as Good Queen Anne. Mm. Yeah, well, she she proved them wrong, didn't she? She yeah. did indeed. Judge books, covers. Mm. Uh, Bohemia had a long history of royal and aristocratic women as literary patrons, and Anne continued this tradition as well. She took a keen interest in Philip of Hainault's foundation of Queen's College, Oxford. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she wrote a letter on the subject of education. All right. Uh, English manuscripts at the time show uh, strong evidence of Bohemian influence, particularly the uh, Liber Regalis, which is a manual for coronations. And Anne brought various book illustrators with her from Bohemia to London. Oh, cool. Cool. So Richard could get all of his little, um, uh, like, ways mm. written down and yes. filed, and he'd like that, and she'd draw the pictures. And uh, she may have left a surprising legacy, uh, real or imagined, in the form of the Bible. Right. Because uh, Anne is said to have owned copies of the New Testament in German and Czech, i.e. the local vernacular, as well as Latin. Yeah. Oh! Oh, indeed. Uh, and according to legend, at her funeral, the Archbishop of Canterbury praised Anne for notwithstanding her foreign birth, having in English all the four Gospels together. But he's not saying that like it's controversial. Well, that's the thing. It would, it, it, apparently not. There's no proof that this actually happened. We certainly don't have any evidence of these Gospels. But it doesn't seem out of character that Anne might have wanted to have had an English version if she has the Czech and German. But he, but the regardless of specifically English in Czech and German as well. It, exactly. Having Bibles in vernacular language is just fine at that point. And John Wycliffe, who's the leader of these sort of proto-Protestant reformers, the Lollards, um, explicitly highlights this fact. So yeah. He's a contemporary. So he says, It is lawful for the noble Queen of England, the sister of the Emperor, to have the Gospel written in three languages, and it would savour the pride of Lucifer to call her a heretic for such a reason as this. It's a very silly thing to get worked up about, isn't it? Mm. But still, she is, you know, this mm. inspiration for the Lollards, for the... Good for her, yeah. And stuff, Bible in the vernacular. I'm all about, yeah, I like it, shaking up a bit. Mm. Uh, she also has a significant cultural, Engl- uh, cultural influence on in the English court. As we said, Prague, centre of this international Gothic style. Mm. And we can see that in some of the buildings that come to London at this point, particularly her manners at Eltham uh, and at Sheen. And one of the most dazzling examples of this international Gothic style is uh, what's known as the crown of Princess Blanche. Princess Blanche, because that's a future English princess that has this in her dowry, but it's the oldest surviving royal crown um, from England, uh, and it's made with gold, diamonds, rubies, emeralds, sapphires, enamel and pearls, all sorts of extraordinary stuff that's never seen before in England. And it's thought very likely to be brought by Anne to England. Right. Uh, for all his flaws, Richard does have a, uh, a genuinely magnificent court in look and character, and Anne's obviously has a very important influence on this court ceremonial where everyday business is elevated, this almost holy mm. state, is something that was uh, prevalent at her father's court. 
Mm. So it may well be that she was able to help him tap into that as an inspiration. It's obviously mm. something he likes, but it's also something that she's got that first-hand experience of. Yeah, so he, that, he definitely would have had a meeting where he said, no, no, no we'll bring Anne in, she knows all about this stuff. Yeah. She's got, she's right, she gets it, she gets me. Um, she even petitioned the Pope to get the feast day of St. Anne more solemnly observed in England. Uh, right, just more church stuff. That's yeah. more church stuff, yeah. But it's just the whole look and feel and culture of the court is being shaped partly by this sort of bohemian aspect that she's yeah. bringing over. Maybe that is, that's the bohemian mm. bit. Uh, even the fashions as well become very popular. So the women wore large horned headdresses. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. Uh, men have got very long pointed shoes. Apparently sometimes so long they had to be supported with chained garters wrapped around the knee and attached to the toes. Good grief. <laughs> the past is so, so alien. She popularised fitted gowns with beautiful collars sewn into the neck of their hoopalons these sort of long coloured robes with high necks set with jewels that kind of replace the basic cloak. Oh, they must have looked ridiculous. She also popularises the side saddle. Mm. So that's where women sit aside rather than astride the horse. Mm. So it makes it easier to ride while still wearing fine dresses. Mm. Uh, and the design of carts in England was heavily influenced by the carriage that Anne brought from Cox in Hungary. Cox, hence coach. One of the only Hungarian words in the English language, along with, um, God, I tapped into a little resource here, haven't we? <laughs> along with goulash. Mm. Mm, there you go. But it's Anne that brings oh, Coach Cox. Two Rex facts there. That's lovely. And one of the most intriguing areas where Anne may have exerted influence was on the English author that we mentioned earlier, Geoffrey Chaucer. Right. He's the first writer to be buried in Poets' Corner, Westminster Abbey, and he was mm. famed as the father of English literature though he's also very heavily influenced by emerging Renaissance writers in the continent, such as Dante, Boccaccio and Petrarch, all from Italy. Uh, but he's also part of the civil service in the reigns of Edward III and Richard yeah. II. Yeah. Uh, so we know quite a lot about him, and he later becomes oh. brother-in-law and Bessie mates of John of Gaunt. Yes, we touched on... Was that in the Privy Chamber? Yes, we talk, yeah, I mentioned that. And he also seems to have taken some inspiration from Anne in various things. So, for example, his work, The Parliament of Fowls, was written to honour Richard and Anne's engagement. So it's a celebration of courtly love and a satire on uh, international diplomacy. Um, so we see uh, three male eagles competing for the hand of a female eagle, which is a reference to all of the negotiations around everybody trying to marry Anne. What's that about eagles? So it's done... in It's a beast fable so all the oh, characters right. are okay. birds yeah, yeah. but they're representing okay and Anne, then richard the dauphin yeah. etc oh, uh, should use dolphins maybe. <laughs> yeah. uh, and the events take place on valentine's day which apparently is the first recorded association with valentine's day and romantic love i feel like the part this past century has been loads of rex facts where you go oh blimey that happened then that all of the, the knights of the garter mm. all of these little your majesties what was the one you just said about Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Well, all right. Don't know. Just seems like there's lots of Rex facts coming out and mm. things that we still do today around this time. Um, anyway, so there's that, the Valentine's Day thing. The date of her betrothal to Richard on the 3rd of May is a key date for romantic proceedings in various uh, Chaucer stories. Oh, right. Uh, and in another of his works, The Legend of Good Women, the character Alceste is described as wearing a crown very reminiscent of Anne's famous one that I've showed yeah. you a picture of. And Anne is directly referenced in the prologue. 
because Alcest says to Chaucer, Go now thy way, this penance is but light, and when this book is made, give it to the Queen on my behalf, at Eltham or at Sheen. Oh, definitely her then. Definitely her. I think he had a little crush. Well, it suggests Anne's either an active patron, uh, or at least a sort of ideal reader of his work. So we don't know if she actually is saying, please write this for me, or if he thinks, oh, I'm going to write something for the Queen. Yeah, this kind of stuff she likes. Well, exactly. He often chooses themes that seem to appeal to her or embody her interests and qualities. So lots of things with characters with chaste marriages, good women who offset the violent impulses of their husbands and other men, lots of sort of very um, pious women and characters and stuff. Um, there are clear parallels sort of to Czech and German contemporary texts at the same time. The sort of similar themes, similar styles, this similar sort of flowering of literature all happening at the same time. And it's likely through either Anne or the Abemans at court that he's gaining access to some of this stuff. Right. Because she'll be bringing stuff over that he might not have yeah. encountered before. So directly or indirectly, whatever, she is uh, an inspiration for this sort of great English author who's one of the most significant figures in the early Renaissance. Yeah. Um, although our knowledge of her queenship is limited, there's some evidence to show that she's a respected, influential figure at the time. Uh, in 1392, a dispute between the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Abbot of Berry over rights around writs in the Suffolk Hundred was only res uh, resolved when they both agreed to let Anne's bailiffs execute the writs on both of their behalves. So in other words, they both trust that they can let uh, Anne step in and do it for them and that yeah. she will do it fairly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that well, interested one party or the other. Um, and many historians have suggested that her most important influence is on Richard himself, acting as a sort of real or indeed sane influence <laughs> that keeps him vaguely grounded yeah. in reality. Yeah, And it's after her death, therefore, that his neurosis deepens and the stability that we've had since 1389 goes. Yeah. And it all goes to pop. She definitely is. She's the, um, she's the communique. Mm. To, otherwise, he would just rise off like a helium balloon. She's holding <laughs> exactly, on to that string. Yeah. <laughs> um, against her, beyond the occasional intercession and this sort of thing, we don't really have much direct evidence of political role. So a lot of stuff has to be inferred we're sort of piecing together, mm. almost like the Saxons, piecing together these bits of evidence that form mm. a picture. God, you control it deleted, though. Mm. Um, and it's technically not until another three years after her death that it really falls apart with Richard. Mm. And that's not to say that her death isn't important in it loosening, but it's not like it's an overnight sudden... Yeah. Yeah. And Nigel Saul, Richard's biographer, gave quite a dismissive assessment of Anne. Um, he described her as a figure who leaves a blurred impression on the pages of history. Very likely, Anne was content with the limited role that convention found for her. It does not appear that she was an ambitious woman. Well, so what? And just means she's going to score badly in battle in this, but she's done yeah. on the subjectivity. And she's, only, and she's only 28 when she dies. Yeah. Gosh. Um, but I think that's rather good subjectivity. I, I, I mean... Not your favourite category, usually. No, but... If you're going to um, make up for your deficiency in other areas, mm. don't know how else you could do it other than perhaps stabilising, being a stabilising force in a time of war so perhaps fewer lives were lost mm. is the only way I think you could improve on that. Mm. But given there wasn't a war, she did everything she could. Yeah. I mean, we're talking upper echelons. Mm. I don't even know if eight is, is too few. I mean, I guess against it being much higher than that, I suppose none of it is mind-blowing subjectivity isn't it it's all just very good i suppose it's surprising a because we didn't think we had much on her but actually there's all this lovely stuff mm. but you know kindly intercessions doing things for the poor and the pregnant ladies chaucer 
I guess Jaws is one of those good examples where on the one hand it's really impressive, and on the other hand it's inferring yeah, rather than a direct thing. But it's all cor- corroborating, isn't it? All the, all yeah, the it all fits together. I guess some of it is how much is her directly and how much is just her presence. I stick with eight. I like it. Mm. I like it a lot. I think, I think it deserves an eight. I may, I maybe I'll go down to seven and a half just because I think there's that question over yeah. the extent to which she's directly influencing all of this versus bringing bohemian influence leads to all this stuff happening, which yeah. couldn't happen without her, but it's not necessarily all her. But I still think good. She does, yeah. does a decent job. Anyway, seven and a half and an eight. That's 15 and a half. Subjectivity. Longevity. Uh, Anna Bohemia was queen consort from the 20th of January 1382 to the 7th of June 1394. Mm-hmm. So 12.33 years. Uh, not very much, of course. Gives her a score of eight and a half out of 20, which is 33rd overall. Half, nearly. Yeah, under. in the middle. Mm. Dynasty. Not the uh, of course, mm. Chase Marriage, Jan doesn't have any children, which gives her a score of zero out of mm. 20, which is joint 42nd overall. Mm. Uh, so overall, rather low, I'm afraid. Her total score, 27, which would uh, currently put her 22nd of the 30 that this will be. Mm. But it's not all about the score. Does she have that certain something, the uh, lasting legacy, the great achievement, the star quality that we call... Rex Factor! It's a bit of a tough sell for Anne. It is. I mean, I obviously, I, I think about it on the way through, mm. but it is too tough a sell. Uh, the only thing I think could say is that she really, really rammed home that subjectivity. Mm. Like if you were to have a an an ideal, peaceful subjectivity, it'd be that. Mm. But it's not enough, I don't think. It's not enough, and you know, it's... It's not very long either. It's less than 10 years as queen. She's very young when she dies. You know, often the being a queen mother is a great chance to really get yeah. the full power and she never gets that. Richard deletes a lot of the evidence and they get on very well. So she's very much sort of part of what he's doing rather than doing something very different. Yeah. There's no real major direct legacy. I mean, it's obviously the Gothic style coming along, inspiring Chaucer. It's kind of all inspiring things, but none of them are such a directly her yeah. Leaving a great stamp. It's all sort of just little ripples, I suppose. Uh, so I think it's got to be a no for Anna yeah. Bohemian, doesn't it? But, no. you know, there was some stuff to her there. Yeah. Despite everything. Correspondence Corner. So a no for Anne. She doesn't have the Rex Factor. Uh, let us know what you thought about her. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page and email rexfactorpodcast.hotmail.com. And remember to send in your hashtag consult cards for a uh, Hermitage Limited playing card style episode image for Anne of Bohemia. <sighs> what are you going to I mean, that's the thing. What that's are you going to draw? Well, you've got to have the crown in there. You've got to have the crown, but crown. Google that. I think there's a direct correlation between Rex Factor winners and easily imaginable consort cards. Though I suppose if you put all of her stuff together, she'll have maybe this massive horned hat. Oh yeah, we crown didn't at the end. That. What big what? old cloak? Big cloak. The funny shoes. Yeah, actually, suddenly it's starting to come to life. And isn't she's it? on side saddle on a horse, which is pulling a coach. There we go. He's, 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 he's done the hard work for you. Drawing it all. Yeah. Tales in the back. Yeah. 
if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use. And of course, donate monthly to join the Privy Council, get lots of bonus content, the Privy Council, Rexflix, where we review films, pub quizzes, all sorts of stuff. Sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. Uh, and find out about the point of shoes. Indeed. And we've got some new Privy Councillors to welcome to the fold. Odd Knits. Uh, a knitting person. Oh, right. Uh, Jill Person, 101-5850-871-5576-351. Oh, they type that in every time. I think that was uh, some kind of Apple ID code oh, thing, and yeah. thus I don't know who it actually was, but if you recognise that. Uh, Greg Noonan, Jessica Letkus, Snake31, Crystal Cox, Stuart Pratlett, Amara Beach, Jack Pascoe, Kristen Prather, Luke Seaford, and Baby Stee. Uh, we've got some messages from our long-ago new Privy mm. Councillors. First up, Nick Bonds. Hello. Hello. One of my greatest friends recommended your podcast to me, and I've been a huge fan for years now. Mm. Listening to you guys helped me cope with moving from a small town in Texas to Boston for law school and kept me sane through the bar exam. I'm stoked to finally be joining the Privy Council and cannot wait to listen to even more of your stellar content. Cheers, dude. That's a review. Uh, L.A. Harrison says, I've covered nine of your ten years since mid-May. Uh, happy anniversary. So this has been around when we did our 10th oh, yeah. anniversary. Is that last year? Uh, you've made my house move and decorating so much easier. One of my highlights of the lockdown day is finishing work and painting fence panels while listening to you. Yeah, I tell you, I love listening to podcasts and doing a repetitive task. John Bird from Melbourne says, as a long-time fan of Rex Factor, I thought it time I should contribute to your great podcast. I, have each of your, I love each of your programmes, particularly the Scottish Kings and Queens. All oh, right, cheers. And finally, Well Good Morning simply says, love the podcast, thank you guys for what you do. Yeah. Aren't people nice? <laughs> uh, now, we need to say a uh, happy birthday to Abby, who uh, turned 13 last week. Happy birthday, Abby. Uh, and apparently asked for a scandal bell as a present. Oh, not specifically from us, just as oh, like on her birthday see, list. Because I just pointed to Scandal Bell, but I saw a moment ago. I was like, oh, we can give her one. But <laughs> actually, I see what you mean. Yeah. Uh, she's particularly looking forward to the Anne Boleyn episode, as she thinks Anne's often been uh, misrepresented in history. Oh, she's gonna she is gonna in, uh, encourage some different views, isn't she, Anne? Yeah, it's gonna. I think a lot of people are gonna be looking forward to Anne Boleyn. Well, happy birthday! Thanks for getting in touch. Um, hope you. Um, well, I hope you have a cake as well. Some mm. tea. That'd be nice. <laughs> and finally, a consort limerick from Louise Brimacom. Oh, yes. Right, here we go. This time, Eleanor of Provence. Um, which was she? Well. Oh, yeah. Queen Eleanor brought little joy to the English whom she did annoy by bagging rich brides and the best job besides for her numerous friends from Savoy. <laughs> um, that was Henry III's yeah. wife, um, who brought over lots of Savoyards who all got these illustrious marriages. Yes. Thank you, Louise. They're so good. Uh, and we should say uh, a big congratulations to uh, Tom of uh, Tin Mouse Animation and Rex Factor, the animated show fame, uh, and his partner Hannah, because they have had child number two. Uh, it's not his name. That Well, that's... Not his name. The, no. the child's name. He's not number two. He's not number two. He's Oscar. Oscar. Oscar to the Oscar. So like us, boy and girl. Yeah. He just did it the other way around. Yeah. Ooh. Because he was the outlier because Mike's got a boy. Yeah. So he need Mike to have a Mike's got to have a girl. Because there was that one year where everyone involved in the animated show had a baby in the same 12 months. Really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, so... um uh, but I wonder what that what the dynamic would be like. I mean, an older boy and a younger girl. I mean, the other way. 
The one that's not. The one that's not. <laughs> what like, on earth would that be like? I can't picture it. Yeah, yeah what's that one? Uh, um, yeah, that because that must change a lot. Yeah, I'm very pleased I got one of each. Yeah, it is neat. Yeah, it's nice. Well, anyway, as we said, congratulations to Tom. <laughs> Uh, so that's all from us, and Anne of Bohemia will be back next time with the second consort of Richard II, Isabella of Valois. <laughs>